Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Hi, I'm Leanne Smith, Director of the Whitlam Institute. This episode features the opening of the National Archives of Australia exhibition, Spy, Espionage in Australia, recorded at the Whitlam Institute on the 8th of March, 2019. Welcome everybody and thank you so much for coming to join us on this lovely late summer evening. Um, A special welcome to our distinguished guests, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Kirkpatrick, our board members from the Whitlam Institute and all of our friends and family and volunteers who've come along tonight to, to celebrate the opening of this wonderful exhibition. Let me start tonight by inviting Auntie Zona Wilkinson to come up and give us an acknowledgement of country. I want to, she's very shy, but I'm going to tell you a bit about her um, before she starts. Auntie Zona is an elder on campus at Western Sydney University and a Camilleroy elder. She's an artist from northern, northwestern New South Wales whose art has featured in collections at the Powerhouse Museum, Penrith Regional Gallery, Blacktown Arts Centre and the Joan Sutherland Performing Arts Centre. She is a highly respected cultural educator and visual artist working in textile, ceramic, mosaic, sculpture, painting, mural and printmaking. And she's also a founding member of the Blacktown Arts Centre. Thank you, Auntie Zona. I'd like to thank you for inviting me to be here tonight. Um, I'm an Aboriginal elder on campus. Gamilaro Bonarua woman, and I'd like to acknowledge the Barramatical people of the of the traditional custodians. I've written this down. That's why I'm stumbling. Like I usually speak from here, um, and pay respects to the elders, both past and present. We don't own the land; the land owns us. And being a Gamilaro Bonarua woman, I'm very steep in and deeply sunk into our land, our mother, our culture. So I, as um, I go along, I like to think of this spiritual connection and the connection that we all have here as well, uh, which comes from other cultures. Being a Gamilaroi and the nation there, it's very vast. So it runs into Queensland, it runs right through to Walgett, it runs through the Liverpool Plains and over the Warrumbungle Mountains. So you can see where we draw and draw our strength from. I don't want to make this very long, but one thing I do say is I heal myself on my own land. That's where I find my strength from. And that's where you meet and find the strength of other people. And I'd also like to pay respects to the people with the elders here tonight from other cultures and the women that are here tonight on this great day of ours. And the respect to my mother, who I must not forget, who is 105 and turns 106 next week. So this is great for me. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, and happy International Women's Day to all the wonderful women here and all the wonderful women you know. Um, We have an amazing um, opening event for you tonight with um, lots of very interesting people. So I'm just going to be your moderator and I'll just get them to come up and down um, as we go along. We're going to start off this evening with Mr David Fricker. Um, David joined the National Archives of Australia as Director General in January 2012. As Director General, David's strategic focus has been on the whole of government transition to digital continuity in records and information management, expansion of the preservation um, capability for paper, audiovisual and digital records, acceleration of the declassification of sensitive archival documents, and the exploitation of emerging technology to enhance the public's access to archival sources. In 2013, he was elected president of the Forum of National Archivists and was appointed president of the um, ICA, the International Council on Archives, in October 2014. 
In 2015, he was appointed by the Director General of UNESCO to the position of Vice President of the UNESCO Memory of the World International Advisory Committee. In 2015 also, he was made a Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters by the Republic of France. So tonight, David's going to give us some background to this incredible exhibition that's being curated by National Archives. And if I may, David, before I start, I'll just also give um, a quick acknowledgement to Emily Katz, the curator of the exhibition, who is here with us tonight as well. So if you have any particularly difficult questions, you know who to ask about that. Come on, David. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Leanne, for that, uh, that introduction. Uh, Thank you also, Auntie Zona, for that, uh, that welcome to country. Uh, and I also pay my respects to the traditional owners upon which uh, we stand here today, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. And coming from uh, Canberra, which is built upon the Ngunnawal Nambri lands, I'd say Widogawidi, which means uh, thank you very much for, for welcoming me here this evening and being with you all. I also acknowledge the very distinguished uh, guests here tonight, Dr. Stephen Fitzgerald, AO, uh, and a distinguished fellow of the Whitlam Institute, Ms. Sarah Dowes, author and artist, uh, and of course, uh, as we said, Auntie Zona. Um, look, it's a great, it is a great pleasure for me to be here. Um, for, for the 10 years prior to taking up the position of Director General of the National Archives, I was an ASIO officer. I was a, started off as the Chief Information Officer at ASIO and then subsequently became the Deputy Director General. Um, and throughout my time at uh, ASIO, and this was from 2002 through to 2012, so there was a right in the middle of the war on terror or right after the uh, September 11 attacks, etc. And the whole security apparatus of Australia was being transformed. Laws were being passed almost every week. Huge volumes of money were being poured into uh, the work of security uh, and intelligence and law enforcement agencies. And throughout that time there, I, I remain very proud of my, of my time at ASEAN and of the organisation and, and of all the intelligence organisations. But it always struck me that to be an effective intelligence organisation, you have to work in secrecy. You, you, cannot, you, you cannot remain an effective uh, protector of our democracy if you reveal everything you know as a secret intelligence organisation. I mean, it's just by definition. And yet, if you want to be an effective security service, you, you trade on the trust and the confidence of the Australian population. Uh, because unless the, the Australian population can be, can be trusting in its security apparatus and informed about events and about threats and so, so forth, how are they going to inform the parliament so that the parliament can make up good rules, so that we can get that balance between civil liberties and between those things we negotiate away from time to time so that we can have collective security? How do we get that balance right? Well, the way through to do that is through accountability. And, and so how, how, do we, how do we hold those secret organisations accountable to the Australian people? Well, there are many ways of doing that, but one of them is the archives, the role that we perform at the National Archives. What we do, uh, we collect the records, that evidence of what actually happened. Not spy fiction, not movies, but actually really what happened as recorded at the time it was happening. We collect those, we preserve those. Now, these agencies are exempt from FOI legislation, they're exempt from privacy legislation. It's only the Archives Act, only the Archives Act that makes sure those records are kept. And what we do is declassify those records and we release them to the public. We don't release everything because, as I say, you've got to maintain security for it, have a, a, an effective apparatus. But that's our role. So it was a dream transition for me to go from, uh, you know, the, the sort of the secret world of keeping secrets in Asia to this wonderful job I have now where I can give it all away to everybody. It's a tremendous, a tremendous lifting of burden off my shoulders, but it's fascinating work. Um, and and it, it really has come to a head in this magnificent exhibition, in this magnificent uh, venue uh, with this exhibition, Espionage in Australia. As Leanne has said, curated by Emily Catt, who's sitting here. Just stand up for a moment, Emily. Turn around. And can we just give Emily a bit of acknowledgement? Um, because this exhibition tells the story of, of how and why Australia's intelligence uh, security has evolved since Federation. And there have been lots of exhibitions and publications in the past. Uh, and by and large, those have really only been able to tell the story of, of people that were under surveillance. Um, this exhibition really gives everyone the opportunity to, to get tangible contact, to, to come first-hand contact with records, 
with uh, devices, surveillance devices and other material uh, to understand how um, the intelligence agencies work. Uh, we've been able to, to go right back to Federation to look at the evolution of security and espionage and intelligence in Australia uh, to gain a more nuanced understanding of how the contemporary Australian intelligence security, uh, the intelligence community has evolved into the structures that it have, has today. And while the exhibition's title, you know, we had a bit of fun with this uh, in, the, in the wonderful hands of Emily. It is, it is a bit of fun to be had up there. There's stuff for kids to enjoy, especially kids uh, my age, to enjoy up there as well. Um, so it is engaging. So I'm not, I'm not denying the sort of the mystique of espionage here, but there's a serious side to this as well, because I want people to, to go through this exhibition and really uh, think about it. This is not James Bond. When you hear the voices up there, you're hearing the voices of current serving ASIO officers talking about why they're there, what motivates them, what pressures are they dealing with. Uh, you can hear from Duncan Lewis, the current Director General of ASIA, talking about what his uh, priorities are today, what he thinks are the major issues confronting ASIO today. And it's, it is really um, unprecedented access, I think, to hear those uh, innermost thoughts from someone in Duncan Lewis's position. We also encourage younger audience members to engage with the exhibition content through the spy mission and spy story trails. Because when you talk about encryption and, you know, code breaking and these sorts of things, you can start to foster a bit of curiosity among young minds uh, about, well, how does encryption work? How would you go about breaking a code, breaking encryption? And there are, you know, problems of logic and mathematics to be explored there. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful exhibition. I've really, you've got, a, you've got the talent we're going to hear from yet, so I'm just um, going to get out of the way so we can hear from Stephen. Um, uh, and, and Sarah, of course, sorry, we can hear them, the others. But I do, before I do go, I really do want to thank you, uh, Leanne, and the Whitlam Institute. can also pay uh, special respects to John Faulkner here, um, who is a former member of the National Archives of Australia Advisory Council as well as uh, of the board here at the Whitlam Institute. Uh, but the Whitlam Institute's support and, and presentation of this exhibition really is first rate. It is really of international standard and we are so appreciative of you taking this on and doing such a wonderful job with it. Um, we're also indebted to regional museums and, and galleries across Australia for, for working with the National Archives to make sure that we can sustain a touring program uh, which enables, as we keep saying, most Australians don't live in Canberra so we need to tour our, our exhibitions around the country to make sure people get in touch with this stuff. Um, I'd also like to thank the Department of Communications and the Arts for, for providing the grant funding that allows these to happen. A very special thank you to ASIO, who, who really opened the kimono, as we say, and, uh, and helped us to uh, have, a, have a peek inside uh, to really see what goes on in that organisation. And they have, um, you know, they, they've really come to the party, ASIO, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful to Duncan Lewis, but all the people at, at ASIO. Uh, and the other lenders, the National Cryptologic uh, Museum in the, in the United States have provided some code breaking and encryption machinery, etc. upstairs. So there's plenty of people to thank, but as I say, mainly tonight I'd like to thank the Whitlam Institute. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming along and supporting uh, these events and showing your interest and your curiosity to keep, our, to keep us motivated to keep doing more and more work like this. So thank you all once again very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. It's, it's such a wonderful partnership to have with National Archives and we're very grateful for having the exhibition. Well, our next speaker for the opening, we're very, very lucky to have with us and it's been kind of serendipitous how we've gotten to know Sarah Douse in relation to this exhibition. Um, we thought it was really important, important on this occasion of International Women's Day to make sure that we showcase some of the women in this exhibition. Um, so we're very lucky that Sarah Douse, apart from herself being the first head of the Office of Women's Affairs in the, in the Whitlam government, um, was also the biographer for one of the women who are showcased upstairs, Amira Inglis. Sarah is a prize-winning author, reviewer, artist and former senior public servant from Prime Minister and Cabinet. A feminist and activist, she became the inaugural head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's Women Affairs section, which under her leadership became the Office of Women's Affairs, later the Office of the Status of Women. Sarah wrote the obituary for Amira Inglis, who, as I said, is profiled upstairs. Sarah was recommended for a role with the government by Elizabeth Reid, Gough's um, Prime Ministerial Advisor on Women, and she soon ascended to the leading role in developing Australia's first national women's policy. After her resignation from that role, she worked as a teacher at the ANU, 
a reviewer for newspapers and journals, and authored her, authored her first five novels, beginning with West Block, set in the Prime Minister's department two years after the dismissal. She also drafted the women's policy for the incoming Hawke government, which was elected in 1983. Her sixth novel, As the Lonely Fly, is set in British Mandate Palestine and was published last year, I think. 2017, yeah. So welcome, Sarah. We're glad to hear from you tonight. Uh, I might have to... Is that okay? Can you hear me? Okay. Look, uh, I'm a bit overwhelmed by all this. Uh, I've come all the way from Manly, the <laughs> KMI country. Uh, thanks to the Whitlam Institute and Leanne Smith. And look, it's been an eye-opener to me, uh, just seeing what's being done in this place. And happy International Women's Day, and I'm, as I say, quite overcome. I got involved when Leanne rang me because, as she said, I was a friend of Amira Inglis's. I, I didn't actually write her biography. There is no biography. She herself wrote two, two volumes of memoirs. The first was called uh, Amira, An Un-Australian un Childhood. That's my mixed heritage that came in. And the second was called The Hammer and the Sickle and the Washing Up. Ours was a late-blooming friendship. I really met Amira for the first time in 1975, which was long after she had left the Communist Party, for which she was under, placed under surveillance for some time. And you'll see that record of surveillance in the exhibition upstairs in her own special spider-porn corner. When I met her, uh, it was because she and I both published a book in 1983. My first was West Block, based on my experiences in Prime Ministers after the dismissal, and her Hers was the first volume of the memoir that I spoke of. And we were both congratulated in the Black Mountain Branch newsletter. Uh, and uh, we were both members of the Black Mountain Branch of the Labor Party. We both found that unbelievably boring to go to <laughs> meetings, but we, we persisted. And, uh, but when I became a writer, I decided um, that it was best not to be aligned with any party. So I let my membership lapse over the adoption of uh, uranium mining. And I wrote a letter to John Cain with my explanation for my uh, resignation. And I'm sorry, I wrote a letter to the branch. And uh, I got a letter from John Cain congratulating me. So I've always been surrounded by tension. So Amir and I became very close friends. Uh, we had a lot in common. We both came from communist backgrounds. Uh, she had actually been a member. I never had. My mother had been a member for about, well, she said 20 minutes. Uh, and that was enough to get her and my stepfather blacklisted during the McCarthy years. And we both had Jewish backgrounds. The kind of Jewish background that is critical of Israel today, that is informed by that aspect of Judaism 
in which the passion for justice is paramount. And all of this, I have to say, was a long, day, a long, long way from a day in November 1951 when my mother and stepfather took me on a trip to San Francisco from LA. This was supposed to be for my 13th birthday, but it was really a business trip. My stepfather was writing scripts for a weekly radio program called This Is Your FBI. And the San Francisco trip was a business one as he was meeting with the head of the FBI's San Francisco office, a man I remember as Walter Kimball. While he and my stepfather talked business, I was left to wander around the office. I have to take my, I can't see you, but I, to read, I have to take my glasses off. There was a bookshelf there, and being a bookworm then as now, it was this that held my interest. What struck me then, and has stayed with me all this time, was a collection of Communist Party literature, most particularly a book called The Negro in America. This was three years before the landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which ruled segregation in schools unconstitutional, and two years before my stepfather lost his job owing to the sweep of McCarthyism throughout the entertainment industry. Although never a communist himself, my mother, an actor, as I said briefly, was, and that was enough to blacklist them both. The reason I think this is germane to our discussion relates to my involvement some 20 years later in what we then called women's liberation, which flourished at Canberra from 1970. I was working in publishing and on my hunt for manuscripts, met a couple of women who invited me to a meeting. I went and was transformed. There was so much to discuss and so much passion with which to discuss it, discuss it that we, it took three more months of meetings before I came to know anybody's name. We couldn't be bothered with names. We were just women on fire with a raw sense of oppression, which didn't yet have a name either. Later, in 1975, Gough Whitlam's women's advisor, Elizabeth Reed, gave it one, sexism. This took place at the Mexico City Conference for International Women's Year and entered the United Nations lexicon from that day forward. Many of the women I came to know through Women's Lib either had been communists themselves or had communist connections. A few were still communists. None of them, however, were willing to tow any party line. All of us were breaking out of what we conceived as man-made prescriptions. One even wrote a paper about Marx, significantly called the last man in my head. <laughs> we would come to learn that there were infiltrators and possibly provocateurs in our midst, but it scarcely mattered. We learned more about the history of feminism and where we fit in it. And it, it wasn't, we didn't fit into any existing organization but our, our ideas did eventually spread to women's organizations everywhere and even sprouted new ones like Women's Electoral Lobby or WELL. And the crest of this movement happily coincided with the landmark election of the Whitlam Labor government. For me, however, the connection between all this and that day I went as a kid to the FBI headquarters in San Francisco was this. The Communist Party there, as here, was streets ahead of most of us 
in pinpointing the dreadful injustices embedded in the two democracies I lived in. For whatever their reason, communists were often the first to fight racism, and through that experience were able to draw clear parallels, parallels between racism and what we were to call sexism, and importantly, the intersection between them. In 1974, when I joined Prime Ministers as Elizabeth Reed's bureaucratic backup, I was subjected to what at the time was considered a rigorous security clearance. ASIO had given up on the ministerial offices. They were all rat bags. The staff, staff was behind, beyond the pale and not worth their trouble. Their focus was directed to senior departmental appointments. But it became obvious that the organization's view of women such as me, and there were so very few of us then, was as sexist as the rest of society, societies. Devoid of the slightest nuance, they viewed me as a gullible female liable to fall for any KGB operative who happened to set their eyes on me. And their way of judging my character was how often I swept my kitchen floor. I kid you not. The section, then branch, then office I headed in PMs had to navigate our way through 1975 through Elizabeth Reed's resignation after the furor over the Women in Politics Conference, through the blocking of supply, then the dismissal itself. I decided to stay in PMs to preserve what I could of the reforms that were in place, childcare most of all. I remember the day early in 1976 when John Menadue, excuse me, when. Gough Whitlam came to the department to say goodbye to us. He could barely look John Menadue, who was the department head, or me in the face. A terrible moment for us all. Menadue left a few months later as an ambassador to Japan. I stayed two more years until the office was removed from the department and I felt I could no longer be effective. Amira and I became close, as I said, years later in 1983 at the, because of the Black Mountain branch and our congratulations in the newsletter. She had been away in Papua New Guinea for most of the Whitlam years and hadn't been in women's liberation. What drew us together was the experience of our communist backgrounds, although like, unlike her, I had never been a member. She was later to say that though she hadn't been in the party for years, you will note that they considered her too revisionist right from the start, it was hard to get rid of the communists in her, the belief that wrongs should be righted, a fundamental tenet of our Jewishness too. When I interviewed her for the National Library, she said that though she had never been an active feminist, how could she help but be one? Life tends to make us so. Thanks. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. Um, two very incredible women um, at different points in Australian history and bringing those stories together was a real treasure for all of us. Our last speaker this evening, many of you will already know, we are very proud to call um, Dr Stephen Fitzgerald AO, one of our Whitlam Institute Distinguished Fellows. Stephen was Australia's first ambassador to the People's Republic of China. He's one of Australia's foremost China specialists to this day. He established the first private consulting firm for Australians dealing with China, which he continues to run. Dr Fitzgerald founded and until 20, 2005, sorry, chaired the University of New South Wales Asia Australia Institute, which is dedicated to building Australia's role in Asia. 
He's a fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and an honorary fellow at the China Studies Centre at Sydney University. Tonight, Stephen has generously given us some of his time to share with us some of his own insights into national security, both in his former capacity, um, working under the Whitlam government, and with some insights from, from his views on that issue today. So we're thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, uh, Leanne. Um, and uh, thank you particularly, Auntie Zona, um, for those uh, words of welcome to country. Um, and before I begin, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. In doing so, I also acknowledge the wrongs that were done to Australia's first peoples in the past and call for those wrongs that remain to be righted. Spy, espionage in Australia. Why me? You might ask, why? I mean, why? Why me to launch an exhibition of this kind? One of my friends, who is actually here tonight, uh, Chuck Berman, uh, wrote to me, emailed me, saying, so now we know you were a spook in a former <laughs> life. Well, actually, that's not true. Um, but um, uh, it's really more because of the association that uh, I have with the uh, Whitlam Institute, uh, and I'm very grateful for that association. I'm very happy to be involved uh, in anything. Um, if I may briefly depart from the agenda, uh, I'd like to say that I have uh, brought with me this evening uh, a surprise exhibit uh, for this exhibition um, in the person of my oldest friend, he's 93, um, Jack Harris, who was an ASIO officer in the 1950s and was assigned to be one of the officers guarding the Petrovs on the northern uh, beaches. Um, and indeed, and he told me uh, or reminded me uh, this afternoon that he actually went fishing with Petrov uh, and Petrov caught a big fish and Jack let it get away. Uh, yeah, what do we make of that? Yeah. Um, the Whitlam Institute mightn't seem uh, to be an obvious place to have an exhibition about spies, but I think it is. Not that it's a spy agency. Uh, if it were, it would have a budget many multiples greater <laughs> than it has. But uh, because of the driving idea in what it does, democracy in our society and our history, and spies have a lot to do with democracy, defending it, sometimes perverting it. And there's more connected with the Whitlam story. Whitlam wasn't a spy either. He was in fact a man more spied against than spying. But more than any other Australian Prime Minister, he took on the spy agencies, ours and the Americans, in the service of democracy and good governance. In Australia we have no national standing museum, as some countries do, to educate people about the role of espionage and intelligence agencies, their triumphs and their transgressions. So this exhibition, if not permanent, does fill a national gap, and we must thank the National Archives for mounting it and the Whitlam Institute for hosting it. And the exhibition does our democracy a great service because once we get past our fascination with the tradecraft and the mystery and allure of the spy game in the retrospective fact or the romanticised fiction by which we mostly know it, there are questions to be asked and judgments to be made about the intelligence profession in our history and in today's Australia. In a democratic society, it's important that the public know who their spy agencies are and what they do, and how they justify that, and that these agencies be open to scrutiny, rigorous oversight, and challenge. 
This exhibition invites reflection about those matters and encouragement to public discussion. Espionage and the role of spy agencies is, of course, a contested subject. I'm one who believes in an honourable role for spy agencies in a democratic society, as did Whitlam, notwithstanding his famous confrontations with and sensational sacking of the head of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, or ACES. I also believe that the great majority of people working in our intelligence agencies do so with real commitment to serving the public and the national interest, some of them at great risk to their own lives. There is moral justification in what these agencies are asked to do in the interests of national security and above all in the challenge of preventing or curtailing war. Witness the many occasions on which spies have done so since the beginning of recorded history. And I'm reminded of this in the uh, 1980s case recently exhumed by Ben McIntyre in his book, The Spy and the Traitor. For those who haven't read it yet, it narrates in graphic and at times heart-stopping, not put-downable non-fiction, the work of Soviet double agent Anton Gordievsky and it includes, at one point, his crucial part in preventing nuclear war between the paranoid Soviet leader and fantasist Yuri Andropov and the America of Ronald Reagan. You might say being a double agent doesn't sound so honourable, and that is more often than not the case. But for Gordievsky, he did it not for money or prostitutes or a nice life in the Caribbean. He did it because from what he saw of the Soviet system from the inside and its oppression in Eastern Europe, he came to reject it utterly. He was, in his terms, honourable and acknowledged as such by his British handlers. It reminds me of those lines from Tennyson about the love-conflicted knight, Sir Lancelot, lines I was taught in English grammar lessons at school to illustrate the figure of speech known as oxymoron. His honour, rooted in dishonour, stood, and faith unfaithful kept him falsely true. And that seems to me to capture the paradox of the idealistic double agent. But here's another angle. There have been spies in our own history who might have savoured that paradox as applicable to themselves in a rather different way, who have thought it proper and even honourable to place loyalty to their secrets and to themselves and their service and their intelligence colleagues at home and abroad above loyalty to their government and the Australian people. That's not an idea we should countenance, not in a democratic society. This issue actually confronted Whitlam as Prime Minister, and it's a pretty amazing story in the history of Australian espionage. In 1972, before Whitlam's election, his Liberal Party predecessor, Billy McMahon, had agreed to an ACES request to put two special operatives into Chile at the behest of the American CIA, working to undermine the government of Salvador Allende. But ACES, it seems, was unimpressed by the election of a Labour government in December 1972, to which one would have thought they might believe they were responsible. For nearly four months, the head of ACES, Bill Robertson, concealed from Whitlam that he had agents in Chile. It was only because the authorization for this operation from McMahon was about to expire that Robertson disclosed it to Whitlam. But not with the intent of fronting up and saying, well, this is what we've been up to and it's over now. He actually asked for an extension for these agents to continue working for the overthrow of a democratically elected, democratic socialist and for Labour fraternal government. I had dinner with Whitlam around this time and his rage was volcanic. But in response to Whitlam's refusal of his request, Robertson went on to defy his orders to close the operation down 
and left the agent in place for another two months and the head of the ACES station in Chile for another six. Two years later, at the time of the crisis in Portuguese Timor and the murder there of five Australian journalists, Whitlam learnt that ACES had misled Foreign Minister Willisey into believing it had no agents in Timor when it had, causing Willisey in turn to mislead the Senate and also endangering Australian negotiations and personnel. At this point, Whitlam summarily dismissed Robertson in voice, according to his biographer, Jenny Hocking, so thunderous that those present still recalled it with trepidation years later. Wherever Robertson believed ACES's loyalty lay, he seems not to have thought it was with the elected government of the day, or perhaps even with any elected Australian government. I don't know how he reconciled this with the duty and the obligation to ethical behaviour of a public servant. We may wonder why Whitlam didn't sack him immediately after the Chile episode. Well, he did act, but with something quite different and far more consequential. In August 1974, he established the Hope Royal Commission on Intelligence and Security. The trigger for this was the objection by US and Australian security agencies to his appointment of Jim Cairns as Deputy Prime Minister and the attempt to derail the appointment by the leaking, in this case by ASIO, to a favoured journalist, the Bulletin's Peter Samuel, of a dossier claiming Cairns' socialism, quote, bears a striking resemblance to that promoted by the Communist Party of Australia. That may have been the trigger, but Whitlam was after something more fundamental, a reconstruction of the entire intelligence system. Hope's report, although adopted by Malcolm Fraser with Whitlam's support, was an extraordinary milestone in the history of Australian government. Alan Gingell, former head of the Office of National Assessments, has said of it, when we talk about Whitlam's legacy, this has always seemed to me to be one of his overlooked achievements. Gingell says, no other action by an Australian government has had such an important and lasting impact on the principles and structure of the Australian intelligence agencies. The principles for how intelligence agencies should operate in a democracy were created by hope from scratch. There was, and still is, he wrote in 2019, nothing else like it in other parts of the world. Whitlam's clashes with these agencies are, of course, history, but there's a cautionary tale in them for the business of espionage today. The intelligence and security agencies, the people who oversee them, the ministers who direct them, and the public. Why? Because the agency's powers have been constantly expanding. The division between them and policymakers in some other government agencies and in ministerial nas national security meetings is blurring. The relationship between the regulator and the regulated is perceived as insufficiently arm's length. Security legislation is becoming more protective and more punitive in intent. And in the political debate about China's influence in Australia, dark tales of the alleged existence of unnamed hundreds or thousands of PRC spies and agents of influence are being fed to willing journalists and propagandists with almost no evidence adduced. We have not known anything like this since the heights of the Cold War and the Vietnam Hot War. In 1973, in ASIS, in ASIS, Whitlam confronted not just Cold War thinking, but the idea of service in the cause of the US imperial design. Imperial, some might ask? Well, Salvador Allende was hardly a threat to the United States, and like Jim Cairns, he wasn't even a communist. Then there's the question of trust and the honouring or dishonouring of it. Virtually all government agencies have a proprietary attitude to their information. 
It's why we introduced freedom of information laws. But secret agencies are accorded an exceptional degree of trust because we're not meant to know their secrets and even ministers are supposed to be informed only on a need-to-know basis. That's fine, but it carries with it an exceptional obligation for ethical behaviour on their part, both in what they tell ministers and in refraining from using the mystery of their secrets for political purposes. But we have evidence of such use in recent times, in explicit statements by agency heads seeking to persuade senior business people to a particular political view of China without information or elaboration with the words, if you knew what we know, you wouldn't be saying what you are. And evidence also in the more opaque, selective briefings by some agencies and some ministers to their own agents of influence to promote public airing of stories with clear political intent. Whether it is agencies or ministers, for a healthy democracy, such practice ought to be unacceptable. Then there's the question of oversight. As Richard McGregor, an America and China watcher at the Lowy Institute, has recently written, in the US, with special courts to oversee wiretap warrants and powerful congressional committees which can grill spy chiefs in public as well as in private, the US system is subject to multiple forms of oversight. In Australia, the system has expanded, but meaningful oversight has not, which, in his view, is a recipe for disaster when public trust is at stake. There's also a caution about whether <coughs> the agencies might act at the behest or at least in the interests of a foreign power. It is widely understood that the dynamic of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance has created a culture of loyalty to its own, in which, of course, the United States is predominant. Now, China, for example, presents huge problems for us all, as I elaborated here in this institute in the Whitlam oration in 2017. But while denying China regional influence and thwarting its technological advance may be seen in Washington as in America's interest, it is not in ours. The Five Eyes, however, appear to be in harmony with Washington on this intent. But the most important cautionary tale is that of ministerial authority and responsibility. Even someone of Whitlam's deep knowledge of government and his willingness to assail the allegedly unassailable, for example in his famous dictum, crash through or crash, even Whitlam did not immediately call Robertson out, dismiss him and assert his prime ministerial authority and the principle that policy is the ministers to determine not public servants, for spies are no more than public servants, we must remember, and so must they. We know too well the Sir Humphrey phenomenon in which a departmental head will spin information or conceal or massage it to play to a minister's foibles but serve their own purposes. This is potentially a lot more tempting and a lot more easy when you deal in secrets and the principle of need to know. In the contemporary Canberra scene, intelligence agencies, or the whole apparatus that is sometimes known as the security community, is pushing into areas of government, policy and politics that we might not have expected and might not think right if we knew more about it. It is responsible and proper for us to be sceptics. But it's difficult for the public to call out because the public knows so little about it and may even take the whole apparatus on trust. The lesson of Whitlam and ASIS is that ministers should not. Eisenhower warned famously of the military-industrial complex. But we know from other times and places what happens when a security complex gains primacy in the influence of gov influencing of government institutions and policy directions and decisions. In today's Australia, however, we have seen ministers who appear to revel in their access to intelligence 
and use and abuse it, even raw, untested intelligence, for blatant political purposes. This is more dangerous for our democracy than any infraction by a particular intelligence agency or individual. Ministers in this or whatever government follows the forthcoming election must be urged to marshal their scepticism and summon their fortitude, for it takes tough-mindedness, and interrogate the intelligence presented to them, forgo the temptation to unethical use of it for personal or political advantage, and push back any inclination to the securitisation of Australian government and policy. I say all this not in denial of intelligence agencies, but in defence of them, in a proper, rigorously oversighted, ethical and honourable role for a secure, democratic Australia, a role I welcome and support. In the expectation, expectation that most who visit this exhibition will also have or come to a similar view, I am very pleased to declare it launched. Thank you. Don't know about you, but you don't get to hear that every day, do you? <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. That was so comprehensive and, and provoked a lot of questions for all of us about what we see upstairs and what it means for our society today. Um, I invite those of you now who haven't been upstairs to, to go up and have a look. Um, we've also got some more food and wine if you'd like to have conversations. I'm sure our panellists, um, our speakers tonight, would be glad to talk to you about any of the things they've had to say um, over a drink as well. So let me just now uh, finally thank our speakers and join me in thanking them again if you don't mind. such topical and diverse approaches to this, to this issue. A huge thank you again to David and his team from National Archives for sharing this travelling exhibition with us. We're very proud to promote it and we'll encourage as many people to come and see it as we can. And a last thank you, if you don't mind, to all the wonderful staff from the Whitlam Institute who helped make tonight happen, as they do with every event we have. And a particular thank you to Sandra Stevenson, who found this exhibition and made it her mission to, to bring it to Western Sydney and to us. So thank you to them as well. Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.